Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2019 Spring Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is H.R. McMaster, the Fouad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is The Wars of 9-11, An Assessment and Implications for Future Counterterrorism Policy and Strategy. It was recorded on April 16th, 2019. It's a real pleasure to be here with you, and it's a real pleasure to be at the Hoover Institution. So I want to thank all of you for the support for this great institution. I believe that in this year, the centennial year, the, the mission of this institution is, is more important than, than ever. And, and that's the, the really one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about, about the, the assessment of the wars of 9-11 and what the prospects are for the future. Because I, I do believe that the threats to national and international security that are posed by jihadist terrorist organizations is greater today than it was on, on 9-11. And I'll just share with you a couple of reasons why I think that is the case. Uh, first, at the, just to, as by way of just introducing the gravity of the topic, you'll recall that the mass murderers uh, who committed uh, that, that act against the, the United States on 9-11 on were members of the so-called Afghan alumni, alumni of the, the Mujahideen militia resistance to the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. Today, and in the future, we are going to be coping with the Al-Qaeda alumni and the ISIS alumni, all of which are orders of magnitude greater than the Afghan alumni in terms of the scale of, of that problem. And of course, the problem is becoming, the, the terrorist organizations are becoming much more dangerous because of the technologies that they can access. Uh, there's a new book about to come out by Audrey Cronin, who's, who's just a, a great scholar of, 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 uh, of terrorism and and counterterrorism efforts, I highly recommend her book, How Terrorism Ends. Uh, but this book is entitled Power to the People. And it's about how terrorist organizations are now availing themselves of the latest technologies, the, you know, the computers we all carry around in, in our pockets uh, that give them tremendous encryption and communications capability, but also tremendous propaganda capability. And increasingly, disruptive technologies that have resulted in what some have called the democratization of destruction. Uh, the, the ability now of non-state actors, terrorist organizations, to have destructive capabilities previously associated only with, with nation states. And we see how easily now even some of the most advanced uh, technologies are, are able to be, to be transferred. And, and we see threats emerging uh, from, from biotechnology as well as the, the advanced development of chemical weapons and, and delivery capabilities. Terrorists are working on this every day. And, uh, and then, of course, this continued pursuit of, of radiological and, and nuclear weapons. And I think it's actually a, a greater, much greater than 50% chance uh, that terrorists will at some point in the future detonate a radiological weapon uh, in, in, a, in, a large, in a large city. It's not actually not even that hard to do. Uh, and, of course, it wouldn't have the destructive power of an atomic or nuclear device. Uh, but, of course, it could fundamentally change uh, the, the way we have to think about, about security uh, and it could have a tremendous effect, obviously, on the lives of those affected, uh, but also uh, economic effects as, as well. But, but there are actually even more technologies that we have to think about that are, that are readily available. You know, a, a drone uh, with a two to three pound payload costs about $499, actually, exactly $499 uh, for, for a particular Chinese model. And of course, those can be rigged quite easily 
uh, to, pose a, to, to, to pose a threat to, to innocence uh, across the world. Uh, you might recall just last year, two years ago maybe, uh, one, of, one of those drones that was carrying uh, a radiological weapon that did not detonate landed on, on the rooftop of, of President Abe's uh, building you know, in, 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 uh, in Japan. And we've seen that the drones also used to, you know, to, to uh, penetrate White House defenses and so forth. So I think the threat is getting larger. And, and the, the problem is, I think, for us in large measure is that we're losing, I think, our will to fight effectively against these terrorist organizations. And I think you've all probably been aware of the narrative that's, that's, that's out there today and I think in growing in volume about let's just declare these wars over you know, and withdraw back to, the, back to the United States. I think that that sentiment is a, is a manifestation of the frustration associated with the unanticipated length and difficulties of the wars in Afghanistan and, and in Iraq. And the belief, I think, on the part of many that, that the threat isn't that great anymore to our homeland, the American people, and, and our way of life. And there's a certain sense of, of futility uh, in, 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 uh, in those, those protracted, seemingly indecisive engagements in those wars. So what I'd like to do is talk to you about the nature of, of, of the, the threat of, of transnational terrorist organizations and then quickly try to highlight for you what I think is a sensible strategy and then really see where you'd like to, where you'd like to take the discussion. But from the very beginning of the wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq, we didn't frame those wars properly. You know, the, the, the Prussian philosopher of war, Karl von Clausewitz, said the first duty of the statesman is to, is to ensure that he or she does not try to turn war into something alien to its nature. And I think both in Afghanistan and in Iraq, we, tr we tried to do that. And in large measure, I think we were set up. We were set up for the difficulties in Afghanistan and in Iraq due to the confidence that we built in our technological military prowess in the 1990s. Remember, the 1990s was a period of tremendous confidence associated with the victory in the Cold War, the collapse of, of the Soviet Union, the lopsided victory over the, the sixth largest army in the world, the Iraqi army in, in Desert Storm. And there was this orthodoxy that, that sort of infected certainly the Department of Defense, but I think really it, it went across our government. And it was this orthodoxy associated with the so-called revolution in military affairs. And, and the, the belief was that, that our technological military prowess would result in fast, cheap, and efficient victories in future war. And the Department of Defense actually set out you know, to, to test that thesis uh, both in Afghanistan and in Iraq with the so-called light footprint approach uh, to both of those wars. And of course, in the very beginning of the war in Afghanistan, our forces were extremely successful applying this approach, this combination of intelligence professionals, special operations forces, our tremendous air power capability, all aimed at enabling Mujahideen era militias that were opposed to the Taliban regime. That victory, that unseating of the Taliban, the sponsors of Al-Qaeda who committed mass murder against our nation on September 11th, really left us, again, optimistic about our military prowess and how a very small force had accomplished this great achievement at relatively low cost. The problem is that we did not structure that war effort. We did not develop a strategy that was aimed at consolidating those military gains and getting to a sustainable political outcome consistent with what brought us into that war to begin with, 
which was to deny a safe haven and support base for terrorist organizations such as they could gather resources, plan, prepare, direct, execute attacks uh, against the United States uh, and our, our allies abroad and U.S. citizens abroad. And so this light footprint approach that was very successful militarily really had the effect of empowering these Mujahideen era militias who then affected state capture, capture over Afghanistan's institutions and, and, and state functions, all of which had been destroyed, you know, destroyed by decades of war, uh, the, the very destructive civil war from 92 to 96, and then destroyed by the Taliban, who put in place really nothing we would regard as, a, as an institution of, of government. And so these, these militias morphed into really organized crime networks, criminalized patronage networks, who had a political objective. And that objective was to consolidate power in advance of a post-US Afghanistan. And to do that, they engaged in a broad range of illicit activities to build up a stack of cash that they could use. But what they had in mind is, hey, if it goes back to the Civil War period of 92 to 96, we want our group to be in a position of relative power and advantage to others. We inadvertently reinforced that behavior because what we, were say, what we were saying at the time from 2002, three, four, and on is, hey, we're leaving. We're leaving. We had a foot out the door in Afghanistan from the very beginning. And so this encouraged in these groups the short-term maximization of gains mentality. I mean, to put it a little bit crudely, get as much milk out of the international cow as you can as it wanders across the Afghan plain for the last time. And, and so the, these groups became stakeholders in state weakness because it's the weakness of those state institutions and functions that gave them impunity and gave them the ability to try to build up this power base and prepare for a post-US, post-international community future. In the, in the meantime, our enemies, the Taliban, the Haqqani Network, Hezbi Islami Gulbuddin, and their sponsors, the, the Pakistan's, Pakistan's uh, Army's intel arm, the ISI, were rebuilding after the collapse of the Taliban in 2002. The, the light footprint approach didn't allow us to have enough forces in the country to block the withdrawal of Taliban and Al-Qaeda forces, including Osama bin Laden himself. And these groups worked together, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, ISI, the Haqqani Network, to rebuild their, their power. And as the Taliban were coming back into Afghanistan, working really mainly with disenfranchised Pashtun tribes and portraying themselves as patrons and protectors for those tribes that felt as if they were left out of the post-Taliban political settlement, we continued to say, we're leaving. We had our foot out the door. And up till the 2006 election, we began to withdraw our forces as the Taliban gained strength. And, and uh, as a result, after the 2006 elections, President Karzai, after being reelected, he looked over his shoulder and said, who's got my back? And we said, well, it's not us because we're leaving. And so he cut deals again. He cut deals with the Mujahideen era elites. And what he did in exchange for their support for the, the, the post-Taliban political settlement with him at the top, President Karzai at the top, is he gave them impunity. He gave them essentially license to steal, license to steal from the state. And so th these were the dynamics that were perpetuating 
Afghanistan's state weakness, even as the Taliban, with our so-called help of our so-called allies, the Pakistanis, the Haqqani Network, and Al-Qaeda, were regenerating their, their power. So eventually, uh, after, uh, after obviously a, a very difficult uh, campaign in Iraq, we turned attention back toward Afghanistan around 2010. That's when President Obama gave the West Point speech about his, about his, uh, uh, his, his Afghanistan strategy after a very long, drawn-out review process. And it was, the spe speech was extraordinary because at the very moment when President Obama was, was committing additional troops and, and, uh, and reaffirming the U.S. effort to achieve a sustainable outcome in Afghanistan, he at the same time announced the timeline for the withdrawal of all troops from Afghanistan. And so this, was the, this of course, had the effect, again, of reinforcing the belief on the part of, of Afghan leaders that we're not really going to be there for the, the, long, the long haul, so they have to make their own accommodations. It had the effect of emboldening the enemy, and it had the effect for those who are sort of in the middle, they've got to, they have to hedge their bets. You know, they, can't, they can't be sort of all in uh, with the coalition and the, and the Afghan government. And so this, this was a war from the very beginning that we had pursued in a, in a way that was, to use Clausewitz's phrase, alien to the very nature of war. Because we viewed the war in Afghanistan largely as a targeting exercise against enemy organizations and didn't consider war's political dimension. What do we need to do to consolidate our political gains? We treated the symptoms of the problem, again, by drone strikes and special operations raids on, on, uh, on, on, on Taliban and, and uh, Al-Qaeda-related uh, forces, now ISIS, uh, Khorasan as well. But we didn't really consider what, enough what was driving that conflict. What, were the human, what was the human dimension of, of that war and work both on the internal political accommodations that were necessary to remove support for the Taliban but then also to work very hard on some of the external drivers of that conflict, in particular the support by Pakistan's ISI. We didn't acknowledge that war is uncertain and that the future course of events in war has to do not just with what we decide to do, uh, but, but it has a lot to do with enemies that are adaptive, that are ruthless, that, that, uh, that, that ensure that progress in war is anything but linear and instead, uh, what we did is we, we undercut, I think, our own will and the will of others by advancing, by, by announcing years in advance exactly the, the, the amount of troops that we're, that we're going to have there. So one of the narratives that is driving really this, this desire uh, and popular desire to disengage from this war is its, its very length. You know that it's been 17 years, right? Uh, but, but it sounds trite to say this, but it's true. It's not a 17-year war. It's a one-year war 17 times. And, and, uh, and so when, it, when I came into the job as National Security Advisor, I really felt it was my duty to put Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the broader campaign against transnational terrorist organizations at the forefront of our efforts. Now, it wasn't a super popular idea to bring this to the president because there were other priorities, obviously, you know, North Korea, uh, the, putting into, into place a policy for China, which you see being executed now. Uh, but, but I really felt that it was not only my, you know, my, my duty to the president and, the, and, and uh, the nation, but I think it was a moral obligation 
And the, the reason is that, that we had soldiers and have soldiers fighting today uh, in Afghanistan, again, I believe, who are taking risks and making sacrifices uh, without really a clear idea of how those risks and sacrifices are connected to achieving an outcome uh, worthy of those risks, worthy of those sacrifices. There's, there's always been ambiguity, a cloud of ambiguity uh, around the Afghanistan and, and, and Pakistan South Asia strategy. So against uh, the wishes of you know, many people in the administration, uh, that was my first international travel was to take an interagency team and to assess what was necessary uh, in, in the Afghan war. And we concluded, we concluded that we needed to, to fundamentally shift our approach to Afghanistan. First of all, we had to no longer have in place this artificial timeline, which telegraphed to our enemies exactly what we're going to do, exactly the number of troops that we're going to have. Uh, and, and, uh, and in fact, uh, we needed to fight. We needed to fight to convince our enemies that our enemies could not accomplish their objectives through the use of, of force. Uh, under the Obama administration, the Obama administration lifted the designation off of the Taliban as an enemy force. So the enemy organization that was committing mass murder almost daily, certainly weekly uh, in Afghanistan, uh, the force that was killing our soldiers and killing you know, far too many Afghan uh, security forces was not even a designated enemy. So we, for example, if we detected a, a group of 10 Taliban leaders sitting around a campfire, uh, we were legally unable to strike them unless they took an active hostile act against us. Uh, so, so we needed to fight, uh, and, and we needed to, to recognize that war really is a contest of wills, and we do need to convince this enemy the enemy can't accomplish his objectives with the use of force. So the combination of the timeline and then how we were conducting operations in support of Afghan forces, which clearly were in the lead and would remain in the lead, uh, in, in this war against the Taliban and, and, and their associated groups. The second aspect of the strategy was that we had to take a fundamentally different approach to Pakistan. And over the years, we had allowed Pakistan really to have it both ways, right? To act like they're our ally and, and to continue to operate against us. And so that was a very critical element of the, of the strategy. And the third, the third aspect of this was to maintain uh, international support uh, over time uh, and to, to actually to actually exert influence on the Afghan government uh, to harden and strengthen the Afghan government against the regenerative capacity of the Taliban. The president gave a speech in, in August of 2017 that I think rectified the strategic deficiencies that we had, that had burdened us for so long. But of course, you know, in, in recent months, he has announced the, the desire to withdraw from Afghanistan and at the same time sending Ambassador Khalilzad uh, to negotiate some sort of an agreement, which I'm, I'm doubtful about. So, so what, what do we do now? I think the first thing that we have to do is have a, a public discussion about the nature of these conflicts and what is at stake. I think what is, what is striking is that in the public discourse, we don't really even talk about our enemies. I mean, how many Americans could really na even name the three main Taliban groups that we've been fighting since 2001? And so uh, when, we, when we read about the Afghan war, as well, uh, typically the, the violence that we read about seems to just happen organically. You know, a, a bomb was detonated. Well, who's detonating that bomb? And, and what, is, what is it that the Taliban wants to achieve? What is their agenda? And, and, and because we don't focus on the nature of this enemy, I think we create myths in our mind about 
what a, some sort of a political accommodation with the Taliban might look like. I mean, what does that look like? Does that mean mass executions in the soccer stadium every other Saturday? Does that mean every other girls' school is bulldozed uh, in, in the country? And we've also created, I think, a myth that there is this, this bold line you know, between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and transnational terrorist organizations. It's, that is demonstrably false. And we have to recognize, I think, that it is not just a theoretical case that if the Taliban uh, and, and, and the groups that they're associated with, including Al-Qaeda, are able to gain control of a safe haven and support base, that that will be a grave danger to us. We know that from 9-11. And we know that uh, based on, on what ISIS was able to achieve in, in the Euphrates River Valley in Syria uh, and in Iraq, and using that base to plan and conduct murderous attacks into, into Europe, uh, and, then, and then also uh, planning to attack our nation, attacks that we foiled uh, based on our counterterrorism counter and, uh, and, and counterinsurgency efforts there. So the, the, sta the stakes are high. Uh, we have to talk more about the nature of, of our enemies. Uh, and then, of course, I think what we need to have is confidence, confidence in a strategy that we can sustain uh, at, at an affordable uh, level of, of effort. Uh, and, and a strategy that is going to allow us to achieve that favorable outcome that secures our nation uh, and our way of life and defeats these terrorist organizations. And the questions to ask and then answer are, right, who are these groups and what are they trying to achieve? And, and really what groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda are trying to achieve is what they say, what they're telling us they want to achieve, uh, which is the, to establish the control of, of territory, populations, and resources so-called emirates, and stitch them together in a caliphate that will allow them to, to rule in their, in their brutal way uh, and to use that caliphate to wage a war against the United States, Israel, uh, and, and the West, the, the so-called far enemy. So recognizing that that's their, their goal, we have to, to understand these organizations and how they're connected to each other. Now these groups are not monolithic or homogeneous. But I think in recent years, we try way too hard to disconnect the dots. Many of these groups work together uh, in, in, in an effort to achieve that overall outcome the, against their near enemy, which are the, 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 the governments across the greater Middle East who they want to overthrow so they, they can establish that caliphate, and against us uh, and Israel uh, and, the, and Europe, the far, the far enemy. The, the, uh, the, the, other, the other aspect of, of the strategy that we have to figure out besides what they're trying to achieve and, 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 and what their strategy is to achieve it is to be able to understand what their sources of strength and support are. So we can, we can isolate these groups from their sources of strength and support. Safe havens and support bases is a source of strength and support, and our counterterrorism operations globally aim to deny them deny these groups the ability to establish those safe havens and support bases. But financial uh, sources of support and strength are very important to isolate them from, from, that, from that as well. And so we need a much better integration, and what we're, work, we're working on when I was in Washington, between intelligence and law enforcement and the financial tools that we have available to go not only just against these groups, but those that enable those groups and help them move people, money, uh, weapons, uh, and other materials internationally, illicit goods and so forth, so they can profit from that and apply, apply that against us. 
Of course, many of these groups draw funding still uh, from, from sources across the Middle East and, and identifying those sources of funding and sanctioning those individuals and entities that are enabling them. But the other, the, 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 the other source of strength and support is ideological. And, and I think you've seen the efforts that the President made by going to Riyadh first for his first overseas trip, the speech that he made, I think a remarkable speech by King Salman, which is worth looking at, and how those speeches were completely complementary to one another, uh, and, and to work with other leaders across, uh, across the Islamic world to, 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 to delegitimize these groups and to ensure that they're regarded as, as the criminals uh, that they are uh, by, by, their, by their own people. So we need that sensible strategy, and we're going to have to stick to it. And, and what I'd like to do is hear what's on your minds, and we could talk a lot more about, about the conflict in, in Iraq and in Syria as well. But I think we ought to have confidence, confidence in our ability to execute an effective strategy against these groups that aims to defeat them, to recognize that the stakes are high, but we do have the ability to sustain these efforts over time. Uh, in Afghanistan, for example, uh, we had 14,500 troops in, in Afghanistan. And the annual cost in Afghanistan had gotten down to about $18 billion a year from a high of $122 billion a year. That is a sustainable level of effort, I think especially uh, because we could get a, a lot more help from Europeans and others as we have in, in Syria as well. So I, I just wanted to, to talk with you about, about uh, how I saw the, the threat, the stakes that are involved, uh, the strategy that's necessary, but I think it's really up to all of us to, to sort of bolster our own will to sustain the effort. Because I do detect these days kind of a defeatist narrative, you know, that, that, that a war-weary narrative. Uh, I'll tell you, our soldiers that are, that are fighting overseas, they're, they're not tired, you know. So, and, and, and they, because they're, they're confronted with this brutal enemy every day and are acting against that enemy, they, they understand what the stakes are. And, um, and, and are, the, are, the, are those that are they're obviously bearing the brunt of that fight and, and, um, and are doing everything they can to continue it. So thank you. I'd love to hear where you'd like to take the discussion. Thanks. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.